0: Our Father, we pray out of your glorious riches that you may strengthen us with power through your spirit and our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do this tonight, Father, we ask. In the name of Christ, amen. As a church with myself and Andy Robertson, we're working through uh, Ephesians, so got me tonight, Andy next week, and then myself again. We've got the young boys for three weeks, as someone has put it. But before we read our passage, whether we're uh, visiting tonight or whether we're regular, it's been a wee while since we looked at Ephesians. So let me picture the scene there for us. The church in Ephesus is a small church, small church in a big city, a trade hub at the time. A trade hub dominated by two superpowers, The great power of the Roman Empire and the great power of Artemis worship. And these two superpowers overshadow everything in the city. And the church in Ephesus is new. All the Christians are new. You're left feeling weak, marginalized, facing opposition for what you believe, for where you came from. And you are very, very aware of the spiritual opposition. Very aware of the opposition because some of the members from your church burned books they used in the occult when they were saved. Be very aware of the spiritual opposition because you came from worshipping a false god. You're aware of spiritual opposition and also physical opposition. Opposition. We were hearing sights uh, from Hugh, weren't we in that prayer, about um, was in India, people burning Bibles, governments wanting to wipe out Christianity. It's always been the case. Here in Ephesus, a riot broke out because so many people were being saved that the guys who made the idols were losing business. You are aware of the opposition for being a Christian. <laughs> so there's many reasons to be discouraged. And Paul writes them to encourage them. He wants to show them who they are in Christ. Way back before Christmas, Andy Robertson gave us the helpful analogy that, that the church universal is sort of like uh, the TARDIS from Doctor Who. From the outside, it looks ordinary, a bit boring, a bit weak. But open those doors, wow. Then you see the cosmic forces. And we see in chapter 1 of Ephesians what this cosmic force has done. That it was God's plan from before the foundation of the world to save us in Christ. How this is part of Christ's plan to bring all things in unity, all things under his rule. We see in the first half of chapter 2 and 1 to 10 how this power of Christ unites us to him. There's Christians in the church where we are united to Christ, a vertical element. And then we see in the rest of the chapter there's this, this horizontal element that Jewish Christians, non-Jewish Christians, now together, one in Christ. A vertical element, a horizontal element. Christ uniting all things to himself. And so now we get to our passage today. I'm going to see three things as we do the divine origin of Paul's gospel, the great power of Paul's gospel. Therefore, do not lose heart. Let me read it for us. We are in chapter 3 on page 1174 of a church Bible. Chapter 3 from verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is... The mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to me by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles and heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and share us together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, Not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Perhaps as you keep your Bible open, you'll need it open for the whole evening. You'll notice in verse 14, Paul repeats himself, doesn't he, from verse 1? For this reason, for this reason. So why does Paul start saying this in verse 1 and then stop and then pick up again in verse 14? What, what is burdening, burdening him so much? He has to stop and say something else. Well, notice as he goes on in verse 1. Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. A Gentile is a non-Jewish person. This is what he says in verse 1. Have a look in verse 13. We, we see here again that Paul is suffering. Why does Paul stop to mention this? Think of it perhaps like this. So far, Paul has taken the Ephesian church up to some of the highest theological mountains in the the New Testament, and they've looked out at these amazing views of all that they have in Christ, of Christ's eternal plan, and then Paul begins to speak again, and as he starts to talk, they notice that he's in chains, that he's suffering he knows their eyes are no longer on the views he was talking about, and now they are on him. How can the glorious heights of the gospel in chapters one and two and this weak, suffering prisoner add up? How can we trust Paul's message when he talks about this great plan and he's in chains? So Paul stops and he addresses this. He doesn't want the church to be discouraged. That's our main application this evening that the Ephesian church would not to lose heart because of Paul's suffering and his weakness. That's our application, that we too will not lose heart in Paul's gospel. And that when we see gospel messengers looking weak, when we feel weak, this passage gives us confidence that the amazing gospel Paul proclaims in chapters 1 and chapter 2 is true and is glorious. So how does Paul get to that? How does he get to this encouragement? Have a look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Surely you've heard about the administration, by that means the process, the strategy of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Paul is saying that this work is not his work, it's God's work. It's a work of God's grace given to Paul for them. God is the origin of all this, he's the source, that's the point, he's wanting to drive home. And this work is this, this mystery that was made known to him. See, the focus here isn't so much what the mystery is, but rather the origin of the mystery. What does he mean by this word, mystery? Perhaps when you hear that word you think of an Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes-esque mystery, some sort of unsolved puzzle type thing. Well, that's, what, that's not what Paul means here. When Paul uses the word mystery, he refers to something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. What does that mean in practice? It means that this mystery is not Paul's theology or Paul's gospel. He has not made it up. It's God's theology. It's God's gospel. He is the origin of it. And this mystery, this truth once hidden, has now been revealed to him Now let's imagine again that we are this church in Ephesus, feeling weak, feeling small, feeling discouraged, and we see Paul in chains. And Paul doesn't say to you, I'm sorry to hear that you're discouraged. He says, no. Remember the mystery of the gospel I taught you did not come from me. It came from God. Just scan down from verses 2 to 5 and notice how many times words like made known and revealed are used. This isn't some private, subjective view of God that Paul's come up with. He's saying, everything I know is from him. Have a look at verse four. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. As you read what Paul writes, we can tell it isn't some philosophy textbook. The amazing thing is that we can read this and we can know something that generations before Jesus longed to know to know how God, through Israel, would save the world. But we know this now because God has revealed this mystery to Paul. And we can read this now. See, we have the same foundations as a church as the Ephesians did. This mystery revealed through the apostles, through the prophets, New and Old Testaments. Actually, what Paul's saying here isn't new. He's already mentioned this. He mentioned it in the end of chapter 2. He's just really driving it home for them. But this divine origin of Paul's gospel, gives the believer certainty. It gives the believer confidence. It gives a certainty that what we believe is true. And therefore, confidence that, that we are saved because of who the gospel came from. To put it more bluntly, the divine origin of Paul's gospel gives a sure, solid ground to stand on, that we know the gospel is true because it is from God. See, what this also means is that we can't, we can't separate Paul's teaching from the rest of the Bible. See, Paul is Jesus' chosen man. Paul was given Jesus' gospel. In practice, if we don't like what Paul's saying we don't like what Jesus is saying. If you go against Paul's teaching, you go against Jesus' teaching. It's as stark as that because it all came from God. See, that's where the mystery came from. But what, what is this mystery? Well, we saw it in chapter 2 before Christmas, but Paul helpfully reminds us for us in verse 6 what this mystery is. Have a look at it. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. What this means is that salvation in Christ is for any who believe. Isn't that wonderful? Anyone. And this new people are are members of one body. Committed to one another, reliant on one another. Working together to serve one, one another. Each part is essential as the other. It means that it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what upbringing you had. It doesn't matter what your income is. It doesn't matter any of these things. Because so when you believe the gospel, when you repent of your sin and trust in Christ, you are united to Christ and to one another. And so the richest woman and the poorest man now share together in this promise, all heirs of the same promise. Isn't that wonderful? See, the gospel is the most exclusive claim there's ever been, but it brings about the most inclusive community there's ever been, or ever will be. Our our society really wants an inclusive community, don't they? We remember great men of the past, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, men who did extraordinary things, extraordinary works in their countries. You need to look in the news and see how things are going in America still. They want what he wanted. This inclusive community ultimately only comes through the gospel. This community the world seeks for Already exists. It's the church. The divine origin of Paul's gospel brings us great assurance and it gives us great expectations because now all who trust in Christ will be saved and share together in God's promises. Let's have a look at the great power of Paul's gospel. Have a look at verse 7. Paul didn't apply for this job. God called him. He equipped him. It's all from God and it's all by his grace. Let me make an aside here. What's what's true of Paul here is true for all of us. If God calls us to himself, he equips us to go and do his work. If you think I'm not equipped to do that, it's fine because God's the one who equips us. And we'll see more in chapter four in two weeks' time about how God does this. One way the Lord hasn't equipped me, if I'm honest, is in um, creative things. Uh, when I used to work for UCCF, I used to have the nickname Creative Craig because I am awful at art and any sort of drawing things. I, I look at something and somehow between my eyes and my hand, the picture just gets totally, totally lost. But when I was at school, I had a friend who was amazing at art. He'd, do, he'd draw these amazing pictures and afterwards he'd be like, oh, do you like my work? I'm not really, too, not really too sure about it. Is it any good? And you' would bit like, put the fishing rod away, mate. Stop fishing for compliments. We know it's great. I'm going to read verse 8. Is that what Paul's doing here? Although I am less than the least of all God's people. Oh yeah, Paul, whatever. No, he's not doing that. See, Paul is plagued by his past. Paul says this, he is being deeply genuine when he says that he is the least of all the saints. See, Paul, before he was saved, he he went out to seek and to capture and to kill Christians. One of the most striking things about the apostle Paul is he was probably the one man who could have wiped out the church just as it was beginning. He is very aware of his former life. And he's very aware of God's saving grace. Very aware of the saving power of the gospel. He was called by Christ and saved and sent out to tell the Gentiles, tell these non Jewish people. And what is he to tell them? He was sent out to preach the boundless riches of Christ. To who? The most unlikely of converts. That's how we often feel, don't we, telling our friends? Those unlikely of converts. You've got CU Events Weeks coming up. What's Dundee? You need 18,000 unlikely converts. Abate, 5,000 unlikely converts. But what do we hold out to them? The boundless riches of Christ. Let me slow down a bit here. I want to really see what Paul's getting at. In, in the text. But to help us, we need to do our best chameleon impression. We need to keep one eye on chapter three, but turn back to chapter one and have a look at verses nine to ten of chapter one. Paul says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. See, chapter one is, it's God's plan in the fullness of time. See, God's wisdom and will are seen most clearly when things are under Christ. And we'll see is fulfilled when he returns and all things are united perfectly in him. A redeemed and resurrected humanity living in a redeemed creation. But that's then, that's to come in the future, but isn't that exciting? that we as a church universal, that we have a certain future to look forward to. But that's then. Let's have a look at now in chapter 3. Let's look at how Paul builds up to great crescendo. Have a look at verse 8 again. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace has given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul's credentials are not in who he is, But in God's grace, for the power of the gospel is seen not in his person, but in his preaching. So who cares if he's chains on? It's not about him. But what makes his preaching so powerful? Well, because it is the unsearchable riches of Christ. And when people hear this gospel... When they respond to it, people are brought in and made in union with Christ. Unified to him and to one another. And when this happens, we see the power and the manifold wisdom of God. See, the power of the church comes through the preaching of the gospel. Not a gospel, but the gospel. The same gospel Paul proclaims. The same one from God. The same one we read of from the apostles. And it's only this authentic gospel which brings about authentic unity. See, unity isn't something you have to try and, and achieve in a church. We have to fight to maintain it. We don't have to fight to achieve it. Because we are united. When we are in Christ, we are united to one another. What that means is that if you are a Christian in this room... I've never met you before. We have more in common than the family member I've loved all my life who does not know Christ. Such is the intimacy of our union with him. We do not need to try to be united because the authentic gospel brings about authentic unity. We simply live out what we are in Christ. See, we do well to remember what an astonishing thing it is to be part of a local church. I don't mean just just go to one and be part of one, part of the people, recognizing that you are a member of the body that values one another, that rejoices with one another, that weeps with one another. And this is a powerful thing. See, the power of the gospel is not in its ability to be popular or or comfortable or safe. The power of the church is not seen in flashy preachers. The power of the church is seen in Christ uniting people to him, uniting us to one another. This is how God's wisdom is expressed. See, what we see here is that if you want to see what the rule and reign of the risen Christ who sits on the throne looks like today we look at the church. So that is where we see his wisdom. See, the world sees the power of the church, not when trying to be relevant, whatever that means, but when people here speak well of one another. When we serve one another, when we provide for one another, when we remind one another of who we are in Christ and pray for one another and encourage one another to keep going, to keep fighting sin. But there's more here. Look again at verse 10 and 11. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says that we reveal to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms the wisdom of God. So don't be discouraged, Ephesian church. Do not fear the power of the spiritual realms, for you display to them the wisdom of God. And, this, and these rulers and authorities, this is Paul's language for the evil powers. This is what we see in chapter 2 and chapter 6. So what that means then is that together right now, as people sitting here united together in Christ, we are shouting out to all that is evil in the cosmic realms that God's plan is unstoppable. We are shouting out to all the universe that Christ is king, that he will build his church, and evil rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm will not prevail. I'm glad I didn't sit home and watch Country File this evening. But amongst the encouragement, amongst these wonderful truths, we still acknowledge that these evil powers who we proclaim the triumph of Christ to, they still fight on, and they fight hard. And there's pain, and there's confusion, there's there's suffering. But we encourage one another. We encourage one another in the gospel, remind one another that Christ is king, that He reigns and that He will return. I mean as this letter was read out to this, this small church in Ephesus, a small, weak-feeling church, aware of spiritual opposition. can you imagine the buzz? Paul says, look past the outside of the TARDIS. I know you look boring. I know you look weak. I know you look ordinary. Come and see what's going on behind the scenes. And This has always been God's plan. It's part of his eternal purposes, we see in verse 11. And this is wonderful news, all that we have in Christ, what we do together as the church. But there's people who don't know this. There's people who can't see the light of the mystery that was once hidden. There's people who don't know the kingly rule and reign of the Lord Jesus, who can't see his manifold wisdom. So what do we do? We do what Paul did here. He planted a church. It just makes sense, doesn't it? So the only way Charleston will be transformed for their good and the glory of God is by a living gospel church that preaches the word of God. The only way Scotland will be transformed by living gospel churches preaching the word of God. But even more amazing, and that stuff's pretty amazing. If you don't think it's amazing, either I am a poor preacher or something really going wrong. Because these are wonderful, wonderful truths here. But something even more amazing, look at verse 12. In him, that is Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We may approach God, the one who reigns over all powers, the one who reigns over all these authorities. We can approach him knowing that we deserve nothing. You have been given everything in Christ. and say all this, it sounds great, because it is. But where is the Ephesian church today? Has Paul's gospel message failed? Is all this not really as powerful as it's made out to be? Well, no, the fact that we are here saying this shows us that it is. The fact what Paul wrote in nine and ten of chapter one, the certain future of God's people guarantees our existence now. Therefore, do not lose heart. Verse thirteen I ask you therefore do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul says to church, don't lose heart because I'm suffering. Don't lose heart because it seems weak. Remember the cosmic truth of what's going on behind that TARDIS door. This is not my gospel. This is not my plan. This is God's gospel. It's God's plan. Don't let these chains fool you. Don't let these chains think you can't trust the gospel because the power is not in me. It is in the preached gospel. when Paul explains what's going on, really, is it any wonder he's suffering? Tonight, we have been, displayed to, been displaying to all evil God's unstoppable plan. So what's evil been doing? Distracting you, perhaps? Nodding off? Plotting to cause us to stumble in sin? Because the power of the gospel displays that Christ has won. But it doesn't always look like it. When we see gospel leaders getting maligned, when they look small or weak or foolish, don't be disheartened. Imagine that you're a member of the Egyptian Coptic church and ISIS come in and take your minister and behead him on a beach. It's hard to match that with God's plan, isn't it? It's hard when articles are written, newspapers slandering gospel ministers. It's hard to match that with the glorious heights of chapters 1 and 2. But like Paul, the power is not in these people, it's in their message. But boy, do they need our prayers. Because as they suffer, as they share the gospel, they do so so that we may know more of Christ. If you're a student here this evening, let me address you for a moment. At your CU events weeks, your speakers will have great logic, great reason, and these are needed things when talking to some students, but that doesn't save them. It's important, it's got a place, but it doesn't save them. It is the preaching of the gospel that saves, whether it's Simon or Abateo or or Ander or Christy or, or you in your conversations. But don't be disheartened when you feel weakened on the periphery because you tell people the gospel. If you're honest, if you stood back and looked at your events, you look weak, you feel weak, the events look weak, the society looks weak, 100 people out of 20,000, but the message you proclaim, anything but weak, the message you proclaim you hold out to students brings dead people to life, the message you proclaim is the boundless riches of Christ, the message you proclaim tells all the evil powers that Christ is king, and that is a powerful thing. And to all of us, let me end with this. If the power of God is at work in this world through his church, then the power of evil is trying to fight back. And at times it may look like it's winning, but it will not ultimately succeed because the power of the church is the power of the gospel. Because it's not ultimately Paul's gospel, but God's gospel, he's the origin of it. And this gospel is not contained by human weakness. It's not bound by any chains, nor is it confined to any one people group. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to any who believe. And what this gospel does, it displays the world the manifold wisdom of Christ, uniting us to him, uniting us to one another. Paul says, yes, I'm in chains. Yes, I look weak, but his message isn't. So remember the divine origin of the gospel. Remember the power of the gospel. So don't lose heart. Let me pray. Our Father, we ask that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit and our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Father, we ask these things in the name of Christ the one who we have faith in, through whom we approach with freedom and confidence. Amen. We're going to sing our last song together, You're the Word of God the Father. And as the band begin to play for Abel, please do stand with me and sing, and then please remain standing afterwards for our benediction.